Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, come now and enliven your word for us this morning. Lord, I pray that this would be the word that we need this morning to live more faithfully in your kingly reign, Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, remind me throughout this sermon that I will have to give an account for every word that comes out of my mouth on the day of judgment. Lord, so that nothing I say would not be pleasing to you and to the well-being and benefit and edification of your church. Lord, come now, open our hearts and minds to the proclamation of the scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, today is the end of time. I like to get to say that, but it is. It's the end of time today. This is the last day in the church's calendar, the liturgical year. And we end on Christ the King Sunday. And so beginning next Sunday, we have the first Sunday of Advent. So today, we celebrate the kingly reign of Christ that has already begun. And then next Sunday, we will also look forward to the coming reign of King Jesus when he returns again in glory. I really love this holiday, Christ the King Sunday. It's a wonderful reset as our compasses throughout the year tend to waver away from his lordship in our lives. This brings us back to our true north. So Christ the King Sunday reminds us that we believe that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now. And if this is true, He's not merely our personal Lord and Savior. If Jesus, if what we say about Jesus is true, he's not merely my personal Lord and King, but he also has the authority to govern all of existence right now. In other words, Christ the King Sunday proclaims that right this minute, Jesus Christ is Lord over politics, arts, the press, medicine, education, business, Law, sex, work, play, our material possessions, our businesses, as I said, and all of human existence. And based on the witness of Scripture, we believe that when Christ's lordship is expressed and embraced in society, it leads to human flourishing for everybody. Everybody is lifted up by this truth. But, brothers and sisters, the reality is, is that our secular neighbors think that all of those statements are shocking and may be wicked and repulsive. Now, to be fair, I think that for the most part, many in our nation would celebrate what we heard in Matthew 25 today. Jesus commends the, in the parable of the sheep and the goats that he will bless those who have met him and encountered him in caring for the least of these, my brothers, and he will judge harshly those who have ignored the least of these, his brothers. Now, they may reject his kingship, they may reject him as judge of the, over the nations, but they would affirm that Christ, the Christian conviction that we should indeed engage with, care for, embrace, love, and bring Christ's kingly reign into the lives of the least of these, his brothers and sisters. But please listen, when we say that we should care for the least of these, now this is so important, we need to recognize that we are making, listen, a public claim that we think should be binding on our entire society. We are saying that this biblical principle is good for everybody and should guide our common life together. But for some people, the, the pinch points of the gospel where Jesus commands things beyond merely caring for the least of these 
is, a, is shocking and revulsive. And I, I was listening to one of our cultural influencers, uh, Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post on her podcast uh, recently, and she was speaking of a, a certain Christian public official, and this is what she maintained, and you can go and look this up yourself and get the exact quote. I don't want to quote her, but if you care about the least of these who are in the womb, if you publicly support the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death, you, this is, these are her words, you are an extreme Christian nationalist. If you hold to and seek to promote a biblical understanding of marriage in the public square, you are an extreme Christian nationalist. If you believe what the Bible teaches on these pinch points and what we in the Anglican Church in North America state in our written documents, you are an extreme Christian nationalist. Basically, if you ever prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and meant it, you are an extreme Christian nationalist. But the reality is that King Jesus makes so many other demands upon the nations than just caring for the least of these. Not the least of which is what is commended in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Listen again to Jesus' words. These are kingly words. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Ken Myers writes on this. He says that the Great Commission is not handed down by one who is qualified by virtue of his religious insight or just because he paid the ultimate penalty for our sins. The commission given to the church is the context of Christ's lordship over the cosmos. And the church's work must always have that lordship in view as it makes disciples, teaching them to observe everything the cosmic Lord has commanded. He is not just the Lord over their emotional lives or over their family lives. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and his disciples need to be trained to honor that sovereignty everywhere, everywhere. Now, in contrast, our post-Christian society believes that Christian faith has no place influencing the public square. Paraphrasing one Christian thinker, we are, we are, we are, the, are content to let secular institutions such as government and education and media define how we ought to live Monday through Saturday. The church, on the other hand, helps us with our internal life, not eternal life, but our internal life. It functions as spiritual Prozac. Thus we let, thus we let the non-Christian world define human nature, authority, freedom, justice, and on and on. Jesus is just there to make us feel better. But beloved Jesus Christ and the witness of scriptures do not allow for us to hold that secularist position and still consider ourselves fully and authentically, thoroughly Christian. And that's why we celebrate, that's why we celebrate Christ the King Sunday. This feast was originally promulgated by Pope Pius XI in his 1925 encyclical letter, Quas Primus. Now, wait a second, Ben. Why are you quoting a pope? Are we, are we all poping out this morning? We did not come to hope to pope. 
We say nope to the Pope. I'm glad I can still make you groan like that. That's awesome. Listen, the cool thing is, is that, yeah, Pope Pius XI promulgated this in 1925, and then almost everybody throughout the Christian world, especially among the Protestant churches, immediately accepted this. They saw the need for it. God actually used that bishop of Rome. But he, he promulgated that encyclical and instituted that feast day in response to the emergence, this is so important, emergence of political states that were claiming allegiance from their citizens, ultimate allegiance from their citizens, and also in response to secularism. In other words, he saw the rise of fascism and the rise of communism and the rise of secularism and that many in the church were being led astray by these movements. And he said, we, he said, we need to remember that Jesus is our king. And that's why we need Christ the King Sunday and especially the scripture read today. In fact, I specifically requested that we read that passage from Revelation 1 today. It's not the lectionary text, but I think it speaks to the reality of this day with such great clarity. The book of Revelation was written around 95 AD during a time of intense persecution of Christians by the Roman state. Christians were being persecuted because they were seen as a political and moral threat to society as a political threat because they were behaving as if the state did not have supreme authority. They were choosing to obey Jesus Christ rather than the illegal authority of the state in critical areas that promoted the unity and welfare of the Roman government. In particular, they refused to honor Caesar as God. They refused to burn incense before an image of Caesar while proclaiming Caesar is Lord. They were seen as a clear and present danger to Roman homeland security. They were seen as a moral threat to the culture of Rome because they were unwilling to adopt traditional Roman values that supported the family and preserved the social order. Particularly, they understood their allegiance to Jesus Christ and their fellow believers to be of a higher order of allegiance than to their own blood family and social class. They did not fit in, and listen, they were raising their children not to fit in. These Christians demonstrated their antisocial and toxic ideas by refusing to adopt out their kids to good Roman families when they were consigned to die for their faith. Christians such as St. Felicity and her seven sons, 150 AD approximately, Christians chose to take their children with them to face torture and martyrdom rather than have them raised to reject Christ in a loving, stable, prosperous Roman household. That really happened. And it is in, into this context that Jesus reveals himself to St. John. But instead of encouraging his persecuted followers to fit in, to go along and get along, Jesus ups the ante in this book. The scriptures powerfully proclaim that Jesus Christ is right now the ruler of the kings on earth and that Christians are a separate kingdom who have an ultimate allegiance to God. This is Revelation 1, 5, and 6. We just heard it read. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. 
priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it doesn't matter what our political affiliation is, all authentic followers of Jesus Christ based in Scripture, I've said this before, some of you don't know who I am and you never heard this, so uh, good. So <laughs> all authentic followers of Jesus Christ are ultimately monarchists, which is to say that we believe that the ultimate expression of government is the eternal kingly reign of King Jesus over the cosmos forever and ever. Revelation 11, 15 and 17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Kind of, if you're hearing the, Handel's Messiah in your head right now, good for you. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. We are already subjects, you and I, this morning, of this king, and we, you and I, are citizens of his kingdom. We are reminded in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, that we live here as sojourners and exiles, even in our countries of origin, we are resident aliens, even in our own homelands. Now, here's where I think we need to take this to heart. If these things are true, perhaps there are some practical things we can do to embody Christ's kingly reign this morning in our lives. Well, first of all, we believe that we're called to extend the effective reign of Jesus right now for the purpose, please listen, for the purpose of blessing the blessing and flourishing of all of creation, the human order and the natural realm as well. We're part of the natural realm. We believe that where Christ is rightly honored as Lord, the world and human society are blessed. Christians, we are not called to be adversaries of human society, but as agents to be agents of genuine blessing, of light and life. We are to encounter Christ in the least of these so that he might be known among the nations. And then even more specifically, along with our brothers and sisters who read that book of Revelation for the very first time, we are to remain loyal and obedient citizens of the nations in which we live as long as the state does not command that which Christ forbids or, for, or if the state forbids that which Christ commands. But when the state coerces us to deny the clear command of King Jesus, we are duty-bound to disobey the state and accept the consequences. This kind of civil disobedience is exactly what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of from behind jailhouse bars when he wrote that famous letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963. And this is what he wrote. He said, of course, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christian leaders in this letter. Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidently evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the grounds that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. 
we should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I'm sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. And then finally, Christians, and please, I think this is a really important point of application for us. I want to encourage you, dear brothers and sisters, to raise your children as if they are citizens of God's kingdom. I want to encourage you to take your baptismal vows that you said on their behalf seriously and raise them as if Jesus is their king right now. Go back and read those commitments you made at their baptism. So basically, if we do that, we're raising our children not to fit in. Here's what I mean. We've reached a tipping point in our culture in which living our lives as authentic Christians who have not capitulated to or accommodated the culture looks at best weird and quaint, kind of like the Amish, or at worst wicked and repulsive. So are you willing to let your children be weird in today's world? I raised my kids to be weird, and I wasn't even trying. Can you imagine, can you imagine not giving your kid a smartphone ever while they are in your house? Can you imagine that? Well, that's unreasonable. It wasn't up until 2008. <laughs> we all managed. Hey, y'all, young people, up until 2008, there were no smartphones, and somehow we all managed to survive. Can you imagine not allowing them to participate in social media? Is that too weird? Well, maybe just a little bit. I'm not telling you what to do. Just imagine. Seriously, I'm not. I'm not. You have to be judicious. Can you imagine a kind of education that does not have as its goal financial success or social prestige, but rather virtue? service to others, and uncompromising loyalty to Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons that Christ Church has a long-term goal of establishing a parish school. We really want that to happen. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the rock of our salvation. And our rock stands unmovable in the midst of the churning tide of the rise and falls of nations and empires. We are a part of that unchanging kingdom now. And brothers and sisters, our challenge this morning on Christ the King Sunday is to really live like it. One of the things that helps us to really live like Jesus is King right now is we have a pledge of allegiance. And it's called the Nicene Creed. So brothers and sisters, would you please stand with me as we say pledge allegiance to King Jesus in the words of the Nicene Creed.